We're, like I said, we're continuing in this series that we have been calling Pilgrims and Priests. Um, it's a series in First Peter. And if you are somebody who enjoys um, the, the old school, the paper Bibles, we have some in the back if you want to grab one there. But if you want to open up, if you have an app or just your own Bible and you want to follow along with us, um, we'd love to have you open to First Peter. And it's, um, if you haven't been there in a while, it's pretty close to the back. It's one of those little books. It's like a page and a half, and I skip over it like 10 times, and I'm like, I swear it's there somewhere. Um, if you get to Revelation or the maps, you've gone too far. So First Peter is this, um, this context of this letter that we've been looking at is um, this letter that Peter is writing to address these Christians who are scattered by God all throughout what we call modern-day Turkey. Um, and that there are people living in a place where they are not at home. They are living as this socially, socially marginalized people. They are this minority in these places. And they're living under this constant pressure to conform to these cultural norms of the day. Under pressure to bow down to the, to the gods of their lands and just to play nice and get along. And hopefully in saying that, you can see how this is just a very relevant book, I think, for us today. That we are living as a people whose citizenship is um, with God in heaven, in his heavenly kingdom. Just as we, we prayed in that prayer, we're asking for that kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, even though we might call Texas our home or wherever you're coming from. Specifically, we are in a Western, kind of individualistic, modern part of our world, which as we've been looking at is increasingly, what you might use some of these labels to say, increasingly secular, uh, unchurched, post-Christian. And in the first few weeks of Peter's letter here, we saw Peter began with this God-focused view on all these wonderful things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and how this identity that we have is wrapped up in who God is, and, and everything that we do just kind of flows out of that identity. And, and it is by grace through faith that we become a part of this family, that this mysterious family of God that we're adopted into, and, and we have these opportunities to represent him wherever we have been scattered every day. And as we will see today, one of the things that marks God's people is actually that we are set apart, that, that we, um, we were looking at this actually last week, uh, David Larson, thank you for, for teaching us and, and showing us that um, you know, we're, we're coming into this passage here that's actually, um, starting in verse 13, what we're going to look at today is actually only the second sentence, verses 1 through 12. This is just this long run-on sentence from Peter. Um, but as we saw in recent weeks, that this identity of uh, God's people here, it says that they are God's elect exiles scattered. And if you remember, we talked about what this word elect means as this sense of people who are called out of something. And how it's the same root, if you remember, I like totally butchered the Greek. I was like fumbling through that and I had no idea what I was saying. And, um, but the, the word for elect is the same word that we translate as church. And it's a sense of these people that are called out of something. This identity there, they're kind of lifted up and placed into this new community and this new humanity and this new identity that they have. And so the church is that. We are the people of God that are called out, right? Even though they might stay in the same homes and in the same cities and in the same jobs, but they're given this new distinct identity as God's people. And today what we're going to look at is a word that I think really summarizes what that distinct nature of God's people is. And that word is holy or holiness. And before we 
jump into and talking about what it is, let me read um, a little bit of our text, and I want to pause, and we'll come back to the rest of it. So in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 13, and I'll pause, where will I pause it? Verse 16, okay? So the first word, it says, therefore, right? Before I get any further, have you ever heard this cheesy, um, I've, I grew up in the church, so I have all these like cheesy Christian phrases that rattle around in my head. Um, What's the therefore, therefore? Have you ever heard that? Like, it's actually a really good question. When you see that word, therefore, ask, why is that there? Something important is about to happen, right? Like I said, we looked at verses 1 through 12 or just a singular or a single run-on verse, run-on sentence. All of these things about who we are in Christ and what God has done for us. And now, here are the implications of that identity. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace, sorry, and set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So let me pause there. Three questions for me that, that come up in this text that I want to address about holiness today. So, what is holy? How do we become holy? And how do we live holy lives? So what is it? How do we become holy? And how do we live as holy, these holy lives as these holy people? So what is it? Um, kind of the 30,000-foot view, the easiest way to, to answer what is holy is to see that God is holy. And all these other things that are called holy throughout the scriptures are understood in the relationship to that holy God. So holy refers to God's purity, his perfection, that it means without blemish, he is clean, he is without sin. But as you read the scriptures, holy doesn't only refer to God, because you see the Bible uses the word holy to talk about people and even things, like items can be holy. And when it's not talking about God, things which are holy are actually referred to something that is set apart for God. It is not for ordinary use. It is, it is set apart, it is clean, and it is dedicated in service to God. So like I said, sometimes you read about things, items, inanimate objects, which can be holy. They, those were things that were you know, set aside to be used for religious ceremonies. It's like grandma's fine china. You, know, you don't get that out for the kids to eat mac and cheese on. It defiles it, right? It's, it is set apart only for Christmas. No other time. People can be holy too. It's not just things, but... Um, what we're seeing here in verse 15, it says, be holy. So this command to these people of God, be holy. Why? Well, because God is holy. So it's quoting Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. And the connection to the New Testament, I think, is noteworthy here because, um, or sorry, the connection to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, because Israel in the Old Testament, they were this holy, distinct, uh, set apart people. And they had these countless laws and, and restrictions and regulations which were to keep them separated from the Gentiles so they were to stay pure and to stay undefiled from these, these other people, right? And it's interesting when you see the same idea gets carried over into the New Testament, that not just the Old Testament Israel, but Christians are actually called multiple times God's holy people, set apart, you know, undefiled, distinct, to be used for God's purposes, one of my favorite books that, uh, I think maybe one of my favorite books that I, I've ever read is about 30 years old now. Um, it's called Resident Aliens, and I had to read it in school. It's by 
um, to a pastor and a theologian, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon. And they had this line in there that um, it, it sticks with me a lot when I'm reading through First Peter about being a distinct people. Um, here's what they say. They say, the way for the world to know that it needs redeeming is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. So they say that the purpose of the church is to be different, that the world might strike hard against something which is different. So the church, it actually needs to keep its peculiarities, right? I mean, what we just did when we gathered and we sang together, it's like kind of a weird thing. Like, when do you get together in a room full of people that you don't know and that you do know and you sing songs, right? And we, we do this thing where we, we come to this table, as we will later, we dip this, you know, tear this bread and we, we dip it in this cup and, and we talk about that this represents this guy who was crucified, but we believe he came back from the dead, right? Like, when you step back and you talk about these things, you're like, that is different, right? That is a little peculiar, there are different ways that we relate to each other, the ways that we, we treat our bodies, the way that we spend our money, the way that we, we live in relationship to others, the way that we, we confess sin together. Like, what a weird thing we did 10 minutes ago, right? There are different ways that God's people just embody these things that make them distinct from the world. And that's okay. I don't know if you've spent time, uh, a lot of time around somebody who's like a career military person but there's just like a distinct way that they carry themselves from like their haircuts to their posture, to their manners, to their speech. Like they've spent so much time training and like in this other world that we might be in the same city, but there's just like this different way that they inhabit that space, right? They're just different, distinct people. And I think it's a little bit like that, that we, we are in these places, we're in the world, but we are not of the world. We are set apart to be used by God so that we can represent this holy God. And I think just simply to say, how do we know what to do? How do we know what, how to be distinct, how to be set apart? And I think it sounds really simple to say this, but we are set apart because we obey God's commandments. Like there are these things which God's put, God puts forward and we simply obey his commandments. And I don't know, if, when I think about this, though, it seems impossible. Like, that's one of those things that come to mind, like, obeying the commandments of God, right? Be holy like I am holy. Like, I can't be like God. That, that seems like this unattainable goal. And is that just this unnecessary burden that I'm going to put on my shoulders? And you're right. Like, it is an unattainable. It is this overwhelming burden. And you might think, well, I'm not even going to worry about holiness because that's for like super Christians or professional people that work in the church. And I'm just like a casual weekend player. Like, I'm, you know, that, that's for them. Holiness, I'm, that's not the big concern of me. But actually, you see this language all throughout the New Testament. Whether or not you want to think this or you want to be holy, all believers are called holy. Right? First Corinthians in the first chapter, the opening words, it says, um, the Apostle Paul in writing this says, to the church of God in Corinth. So he's talking to all of these Christians, right? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. It's everybody, right? It says together with all those everywhere. So not just Corinth, but all throughout the region. All those who have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, are called to be his holy people. And so holiness is not just a professional thing, but it is for every single person who believes in Jesus Christ. And now I think the question that comes up naturally is, does our obedience make us holy? 
Is it the fact that we do the things God says, does that somehow equal us being holy? And I think the answer is no, because we can't perfectly obey God. There's a, a place in, in uh, the, the wisdom book in the Old Testament, um, Proverbs chapter 20. The, uh, the writer of Proverbs asks a question like this, who can say I have kept my heart pure and I am clean and without sin? Right? The Apostle Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 3. He says, Jews and Gentiles, right? He's talking about God's clean, holy people and these unclean people. He lumps them together and says, who is righteous? And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So that is the second question that I wanted to answer. How do we become holy? If it's not our obedience, how do we become holy? And the answer is simply to say it is the gospel. It is the good news that God has done for us in Jesus Christ what we cannot do for ourselves. That our holiness, our, our, our cleanliness, this identity is being set apart. It comes to us because of what Jesus has done, not because what we have done. We don't try to be holy because we think this will make God happy, right? That it'll, it'll get him to love us. But we are holy because we have been transformed by God's spirit. We are holy because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That somehow, mysteriously, like we are attached to that. And his righteousness, his holiness becomes ours. So let's go back into our text in 1 Peter. We took a long pause at verse 16. So let's pick up verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Again, there's that idea that, that these are people that are in this land as foreigners, right? Verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. And now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like the grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And then continuing in chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that it may be, that it may, sorry, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And now that you have tasted and seen, the Lord is good. So, I mean, that's, our, our chunk of text is long and there is a lot to unpack in there. But just to remind, the question that we're looking at, how do we become holy? It's interesting, if you see the language throughout this passage, is actually things which have already been done for us in Jesus. Key word here is in verse 18, redeemed. Right? This, is, this is a past tense, like a, a perfect tense of something that happened once, 
And it, it is done and is ongoing throughout history. It says, um, th- this word redeemed, it can literally mean ransomed. Like, if you think of, like, ransom, like, you might be thinking of, like, a Liam Neeson movie, because I feel like half of his movies that he's in involve somebody being held hostage and there's a ransom. Um, or, like, my mom, she clicked one of those scam emails once and downloaded some ransomware, and her computer was taken over by probably some teenager in a basement in Russia who's like, pay me, you know, whatever percent of a Bitcoin and I will release your computer to you. So ransom, like, that's the same word for, for here, redeemed. The New Testament, it tells us that there's this cost, that this wage of, of the wages of sin is death, that there is a price to pay, and that ransom, that price was paid for us, not with silver and gold, but something much more precious, which was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so here, that blood of Jesus Christ is compared to this perfect lamb, this unblemished lamb that was used for, um, all throughout the Old Testament, you see these pictures of this lamb used for ceremonial reasons. Um, In ancient Israel, it was an offering for the forgiveness of sins. And I learned this once, and it's really fascinating. When Old Testament scholars talk about the blood and and what the blood represented in these uh, these rituals, these religious practices, the technical term that I always thought was so weird that these people would use is they would call blood a detergent. Like, blood as a detergent, isn't that the opposite of, like, I put detergent in my laundry to get the blood out, and it's the one thing that, like, ironically doesn't come out with detergent, but, but blood made things clean. So you see in, uh, in the New Testament, Titus chapter 2, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So this idea that this detergent, that this blood of this lamb, it not only purifies us, but it was what was paid to buy us, not more than silver and gold, much more precious than that. So we've been seeing through this passage all these things that have already been done for us. Let me just look at a couple of these other places. Verse 14 calls us children, right? We are, verse, verse 17, reminded that God is our father, that these are these fixed identities, you know, my, my sons don't stop becoming my sons even when they broke the needle on my record player. As irritating as that was, they're still my kids, right? Like, nothing's going to change that. In the same ways that God loves his children to be obedient, but a failing and falling son or daughter does not stop being a son or daughter. In verse 22, it says, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. This is... Uh, what in the, the Greek here is referred to as the perfect tense. It is this action in the past, this completed action that, that has permanent and ongoing implications in the present and the future. You have purified yourselves. It's done. Do you see the, the, the beauty of this and the power of this? It, and interestingly, it says you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Like we have believed that Jesus, or we, we believe that Jesus Christ himself is the truth, Right? That we are purified by believing in Jesus, not by like doing a bunch of religious activities. And then verse 23, it says, you have been born again. Again, it's that use of the perfect tense. This thing which happened once, you have been born again. All of these words, all of this, this text here points to the fact that we don't earn our own holiness, but it was something that was done and is something that came to us by God's power. Paul says this, 
um, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, in a really unique way, he says, don't, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So this, this sense that like the holiness is, is because God's spirit comes to dwell in this place, comes into this body as this temple, and that is what makes us a holy place. And it's interesting when you think about what I said about blood as this detergent. Um, in the Old Testament, blood was the thing that was actually used to, to cleanse the inside of the temple. Like the blood of the lamb was splattered on the walls as the, for this symbolic cleaning of God's people. Which is odd to me because, I mean, could you imagine like walking into a blood splattered room and thinking, wow, this is nice and clean. Like, it's probably the most opposite thing that you can think of as being clean. It's probably what my wife thinks when I say, look, I've cleaned the kitchen. And she walks in and she's like, you clean the kitchen? Um, it's a whole other story. But so if you want to take one thing away from this is that God's grace has the last word. That, that our sin does not remove our holiness because it was never about what we did, but it was about what God has done for us. Something I've learned in recent years as a follower of Jesus, and don't take this the wrong way, this might sound a little insulting, so hang with me, but you're not as important as you think you are. Probably a nicer way to say that, but the gospel is more about what God has done and less about what we do. That Jesus saves us. God is the main actor of this story. It is his power to save, and that power is much more effective than our ability to screw it up. Like, obedience matters, and we're, we're going to get to that in a little bit, but, but not obedience so that we can make God happy and save ourselves, right? We don't have enough authority or power or knowledge um, to screw it up or to save ourselves. Only God does. Only God saves, only God can take something that is unclean and make it clean and take something that is dead and make it alive. And that is what happens in every single one of us when we come to Jesus Christ in, in faith is that dead things are made alive. And I don't have the power to do that, right? So there's your motivational pep talk for the day. You are less able than you think you are. I don't know. I found a lot of comfort in that over the years. So anyway, let me finish with this. Uh, the third question that comes up in this text about holiness. Um, how do we live holy lives? Understanding that what holiness is and understanding that what we do to become holy, that this is totally God's work, there are instructions in this text for what holy people do. Um, I'll, let me say this first. In working through this text, when I first um, was reading this text a couple weeks ago, I was a little nervous to go into this because a talk on holiness, it, it just feels really like moralistic. And, and I don't like things that make people feel like there's this moral checklist of what to do. Um, I, I heard this guy at a conference once say, all, all I took away from this talk was basically like, if you don't curse in front of people, like people will come to faith in Jesus. And I'm like, that's it? Really? But, but there's these messages that can come out of the scriptures. They just sound so like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm such a people pleaser, but they sound so lame, Right? This is like old school, not cool stuff, right? Like I wanted to move away. I ran away from this traditional moralistic stuff when I was, um, you know, younger as a Christian. And, 
you know, the things that like my dad and my mom grew up with. My dad said his mom would always tell him, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't girl, go with girls that do. Have you ever heard that? Like that's the, like the moralism of like, I wanted to run away from that, right? I wanted to be a cool Christian, right? I wanted to smoke and drink and chew and be surrounded by girls that do. So, so Alex, Alex and I got married for that reason. Uh, no, nah, no, nah, she's super straight laced. All right. But so I didn't know what to do with verses like this and all throughout First Peter, verse 17. It talks about since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, you know, live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. And I'm like, oh, God, is it a judge like Santa Claus, like making a list, checking it twice? Like these ideas often made me uncomfortable. And then you, you read the scriptures and you can't avoid, you know, Peter and Paul and Jesus and anywhere in the New Testament giving this this command to just live out this holy life, to be distinct, to be these people that are set apart. And I mean, I think it says a lot about um, just kind of our cultural moment. Like if you've ever been called holier than thou, if you did not know, that's not a compliment. So I'm sorry to break it to you, but so I sit with passages like this and there, there can be this Sometimes I feel like, is there a tension here between grace and obedience, right? But I think when you, when you understand what is the power and what is the motivation, we see that this call to holiness is just actually a natural byproduct of our grace that we've received. Like holiness is an invitation to be like God who is holy. And I don't think it's to make God happy, but I think it's for our own joy that we can we can receive and be a part of this connection with him that is without hindrance. So we come to him and we're not in this cycle of guilt and shame and confession, but we actually come to him to simply enjoy him, to be with him and commune with him and to worship him and to give him thanks. Like holiness is hard. It, it goes against the grain of society and it goes against, I think, our natural inclinations. But discipleship is the way of the narrow path. It is not the wide, easy road. Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and to follow him. Um, Dallas Willard, who I, people have pointed out every Sunday, you are going to hear a Tim Keller or a Dallas Willard reference. So I, I should broaden my horizons of people that I look up to and read. But Dallas Willard says this, and it's really reframed, reframed my understanding of, of when Jesus talks about counting the cost of following him. And Dallas Willard says this, this isn't the idea of, of looking at the call to follow Jesus and to look at this long list of all these things Christians do and to think, ah, man, this is going to be real hard. Count the cost. This is going to be incredibly difficult, so be ready for it. No, Willard says it's actually a very simple form of accounting, right? Look at the cost of following Jesus on one side and the cost of not following him on the other side. And which is greater? He said, we should find that the cost of not following Jesus is immensely more costly than the cost of following Jesus. So to put it in Peter's language, holiness is hard, but non-holiness is harder. And so listen, as, as we've read through this text, just invite you to listen to the living and active word of God. And that there might be parts of this passage that encourage you, that challenge you, that rebuke you and strengthen you. And it's not this like, you know, clean up your act, sinner, but it's just this invitation to live a life where, where I think we're just, it's easier to connect with God. And there are countless ways throughout this passage, and, and just 
too many, honestly, and, and you can say the conversation about how to be holy is like, I don't know, the Bible, right? But, so this might be a cop-out, but some of the invitations to holiness here. Verse 22, love one another deeply, right? The greatest commandment according to Jesus is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Like love is the practice of holy people. Love is the way of holy people. Um, chapter 2, verse 1, this list, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Um, sometimes holiness looks like refraining from things, right? Don't do these bad things. They are not good for you. But sometimes it's proactive. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like crave things that nourish you as opposed to things which deplete you and leave you unsatisfied. Like there are so many things that I love to eat in that moment and 30 minutes later, this biggest regret of my life, right? So things which satisfy us, the spiritual nourishment. And then verse 13, I kind of want to end with a reflection on this because I think it's just very relevant to the world that we live in and it just from knowing people in life and, and throughout Dallas, it, it, this word here, um, verse 13, it talks about having these minds that are alert and fully sober. Set your hope on God's grace. This word that Peter uses here for sober, it means literally to like gird up your loins. We don't wear robes anymore, but it was the idea of like literally taking up your robe and like tucking it into a belt so you were like ready to rock. Um, it's just kind of like roll up your sleeves. That would be the same type of expression. But it's this image of readiness, readiness mentally and physically, just being sober-minded, alert. And I think sober usually refers to, in our modern context, we, we think about sobriety with alcohol and drugs, right? But it can refer to anything related to self-control. And I, it's fascinating for me, something I think God was showing me through this passage, is this connection to our future hope and to us being ready and sober. That if our hope is not solely on God's grace, as it says here, nothing else is certain except God's grace and his future return and his coming kingdom, right? And, and anything that we might do to cope with that uncertainty, other than just resting in that confidence in the Lord's future, anything that we would run to to distract us, to, to comfort us, to numb us, um, there are so many ways that we would pursue, how do you say, just this, this distraction from the future. So we turn to alcohol and drugs to distract us, to numb out. We follow every sexual craving and desire, no matter how unhealthy, because it just it is great in the moment, right? We turn to food for comfort. There's a reason that we call retail therapy. Not like an actual therapist, but like shopping, right? It feels good. Man, when I got the shoes that I've been wanting for a long time, like it feels really good in that moment. And, and I, if I have so many of these mechanisms that I've developed over the years that can distract me from the stresses of, of parenting and, and relational conflict and work conflict and, or whether it's unfulfilled dreams or unmet expectations that I have a really good toolbox of things to distract me, Right? But as this passage gives us this picture of just as these obedient children, just to be honest with ourselves and to say, okay, God, is the future just like this terrifying, overwhelming thing that I have so many ways that I, I'm not being sober-minded because I don't want to just think out there. I just want to live in this moment. And he says, set your hope on God's grace. 
Set your hope on your identity, verse 14. And he goes, Peter goes right away into this, this identity as being these obedient children. Like, you are God's child. As we sang in that song and as I was praying earlier, that, that he is your father. And I think just this experience of that, being a son or daughter, um, it's transformative. And I think we'll find that, yeah, if you are motivated to live a holy life just because you want to make God happy and you feel like this is what you have to do, I think that striving is a motivation that dries up very quickly. But living a holy life, understanding who we are, that we are made holy, God has done it, we don't do it, and that this way that we live just flows out of that identity, I think that is a motivation that is lasting. And it's not to say that we don't need reminders of that identity. And that's one of the reasons that we we come to this table every week, and then we'll, we'll come to the table together now, that we remember who we are and who God is, and, and that defines our reality. And that we remember what it says in this passage here, that it is not silver and gold that we were ransomed with, but with this costly, precious, but also purifying blood of this lamb. 